Welcome back to Stand Up Citizen on this cold Ohio night. We discussed courage in the last podcast, and there's no better time for courage than right now, political courage is specifically. You know, our candidates often cite our Constitution and founding principles in support of a favored position. Even in the impeachment hearings, the founders are front and center. We hear about references to Madison and Hamilton and others of the founding generation, and that's as it should be. Yet nobody, the press, the candidates, experts, ever points to the ways our politicos today act entirely contrary to our founders' reasoning. Our gerrymandered system ignores the lessons of the great ratification debate, which defined the rationale for our American constitutional system. We went through that in our last podcast entitled The Greatest Debate, and indeed it was. During that debate, positions on issues were often far apart, Yet the party somehow engaged in substantive discourse and elevated the exchange of ideas. Name-calling and sloganeering were simply not sufficient given the serious nature of what was at stake and the intellectual heft of those engaged. By the way, affairs of state are always, underline always, serious matters. Remember, unlike almost any other modern nation, we have enjoyed over two centuries of continuity in government through orderly transitions and with sustained economic prosperity. There was, of course, that major hiccup of the Civil War. I hadn't forgotten about that. But even brilliant and enduring states in history have fallen. We have to keep that in mind. So. I want to do a little reminiscing. It's worth it for all of us to recall that the Constitution was the culmination of 25 years of debate and struggle, not just a few weeks or a few months. The patriotic colonists helped Britain win the French and Indian War. Then very soon, the conflict with Parliament over taxes to pay for that war. Then the 1765 Stamp Act, the Declaratory Acts, the increasing tension that sparked the 1770 Boston Massacre, the 1773 Boston Tea Party, the creation of the colonists' committees of correspondence, the dramatic, the long internal debate among the colonists over independence, the outbreak of fighting at Lexington and Concord in 1775, then the Declaration of Independence, a treasonous act against the crown of England, eight years of fighting against the powerful British military forces, Valley Forge, Saratoga, the French Alliance, 1781 victory at Yorktown, Finally, peace with Britain in 1783. Then from May to September 1787, the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention 
drafted the plan of government, the second plan of government, first being the Articles of Confederation. And the new constitution's drafting was followed by nine months of the greatest debate we just covered. And finally, ratification in 1788. That's an entire generation devoted to creating our nation. Georgia Washington was 33 when the Stamp Act passed and 56 when the Constitution was finally ratified. So the colonists, the new Americans, uh, had a chance in Thomas Paine's words, quote, we have it in our power to begin the world over again, unquote. So those who invoke the founders, as our politicos are doing, almost daily now, so take them at their whole measure. We and they should note their principles, their reasoned disagreements, and the high road of debate in which they engaged. And recall, they could not be certain of success, since creating a new nation in this way was simply without precedent. We the people, think about that, we the people, the idea the adopted principle of the American Republic, that the individual is central to and the source of government authority. That principle informed and motivated the entire argument and revolutionary ethos. This, then, is American exceptionalism, a nation built on a philosophical principle rather than conquest or accident and force. In this respect, at least, America was a great nation before it was a great power. So let's talk about faction, one of the difficult problems that the framers of the Constitution had to deal with in structuring the new government. It was, after all, to deal with the potential undermining effects of faction that the founders applied what they called political science in arriving at their ultimate design, the design that we operate under even today. Their solutions in the structure of constitution depended on informed citizens providing consent through thoughtful debate and, quote, reflection and choice, unquote. Remember that Publius, the name used by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, Publius's study of history, kind of out of fashion today, convinced the other framers that faction was the mortal disease under which popular governments have everywhere perished. That's from Madison Federalist Papers. The formation of dominating factions had led to the failure of those republics of the past. So the new constitution had to be effective in controlling faction, but at the same time would not suppress self-expression and individual liberty. The framers, who were practical men, were convinced that faction is inevitable owing to different views, capabilities, and interests. Yet people must be free to express their views and pursue their lawful interests. Quote, the latent causes of faction are sown into the nature of man. The inference to which we are brought 
is that the causes of faction cannot be removed and that relief is only to be sought in the means of controlling its effects. Once again, that's Federalist 10. If you don't know any other Federalist paper, Federalist 10 is the one to learn. So because of the existence of faction, public officials also needed to conduct themselves with courage and in the spirit of civic virtue. Or the country could succumb to the passions of the mob. Henry Lee's eulogy of George Washington said it this way. Control party spirit, the bane of free governments. And the question is how? Let's recall that their solution in Federalist 10 to the damaging influence of faction was not less diversity of interests and views, but more diversity. A greater diversity of political views and interests would force both sides to assert and defend their positions through vigorous debate, a kind of healthy competition, if you will. Ambition would counteract ambition. The anti-federalists complained that the large expanse of the United States would make a republic untenable because, in their experience, large nations had inevitably led to monarchy or tyranny or despotism. But Publius argued, convincingly, that the size of the United States was a benefit since it led to more widely varied views and interests that would naturally compete with one another. In our political environment, our officials have veered sharply away from this founding principle. Instead of seeking the beneficial effects of greater diversity of interests and views, our political parties draw congressional districts to cram similar interests into gerrymandered congressional district boundaries, quote, safe districts, unquote. And this is true for both parties. The creation of safe districts, what we call gerrymandering, limits diversity of views and takes advantage of concentrations of like-minded voters to influence election outcomes. By limiting diversity and promoting political homogeneity, our political officials violate one of the founders' essential constitutional reasonings in creating the design for our republic. Remember, Franklin said in response to the woman's question, you have a republic if you can keep it. Look, simply stated, those who limit diversity of views and interests when they create safe districts run 180 degrees counter to the design and intent of Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Who would you rather go with, our current politicos or Hamilton and Madison? Safe districts undermine one of the key principles of the constitutional design. And when states gerrymandered the boundaries of their districts to create safe districts for a particular party or a particular point of view, it further entrenches a party candidate. That makes it unnecessary for the candidate to explain and defend their views in the face of energetic opposition. 
In other words, there's no need to exercise political courage. In fact, they are able to sidestep the marketplace of ideas that should be the lifeblood of a democratic republic. The cruel political irony is that a lack of political courage in a safe district is no bar to re-election. We would be wise to consult the eminent conservative, one of my favorites, Edmund Burke, who is a contemporary of our founders. He held that those in government should provide good and prudent management and not use government as a platform for ideology. He also believed adamantly that a public official's proper role was to represent the interests of the entire nation, not just parts of it which aligned with their political philosophy. This is the very essence of the idea of civic virtue. Okay, we are a nation founded on the principle that the consent of the people is required to receive authority to serve in our government. Remember, that was our very first episode. To make sound voting decisions, founders wish his citizens to be capable of distinguishing between fact and fiction, between truth and lies, uh, which a vigorous debate would reveal. At least this was their hope. Without a healthy exchange of ideas, how can a citizen make a clear, informed decision to confer their consent in voting for a candidate? The public give and take over issues, great and small, is a rehearsal for the burdens of office to which our political candidates aspire. If they can't hold forth in this way, candidly and fully engaged, how in the world will they manage affairs of state? Those candidates who do not have the necessary political courage to test their ideas risk great error and don't deserve citizens' support. What can occur when a candidate's views encounter no offsetting groups or candidates with differing views? Let's review a couple. Without publicly expressed opposing views, there's no way to test their positions. And a challenge may only strengthen their position and perhaps attract more support. If they happen to be wrong, their position can be corrected before damage is caused and policies go awry. Those who prefer safe districts either lack the political courage to respond to challenges or they don't have enough faith in their own positions. And by such political artifice, let's call it, they can more easily create factions that can impede the rights of those who oppose them. It is for this reason that our founders insisted that diversity of views and interests was essential to a functioning, successful republic. Gerrymandering distorts the framers' representative design, intent, and structure. Period. Maybe worst of all, without a need to respond to challenges, they might proceed on the basis of their absolute, untested certainty. Enough tragedy in history has arisen from this tendency, this, oh, this disease of certainty. America is supposed to be different and surely was designed by our founders to be different. 
Let me take a little detour now about personal attacks. All too often, rather than meet opponents' challenges, candidates and politicos resort to characterizing an opponent as lacking character or ethics or even proper Christian sensibility. Demonizing the opposition is a poor substitute for what the founders would call manly debate. And it runs counter to the principle that one should accord even those who disagree with you both dignity and respect. Quote, the Christian and natural law tradition says that human beings are equal and valuable, not because of what they think, but because of who they are. That's from Michael Gerson, the conservative columnist of the Washington Post. In other words, all men are created equal, right? These so-called ad hominem attacks also tend to incite the mob that the founders abhorred and feared. Rather than whip up the mob to a frenzy to favor one side, the representative imbued with public or civic virtue should act temperately for the good of the nation as a whole. Barry Goldwater famously said in his nomination speech, we must not see malice in honest differences of opinion. So I have a few proposals I'd like you to think about. How can we promote open, fair debate and require our candidates to show their political courage on the many issues we have facing us? One, make congressional districts more diverse rather than attempting to assemble citizens with like-minded views and interests. Pretty basic. Two, encourage real debate, not the staged media events hosted by our press corps luminaries. If I hear another question about Medicare for all in the debate, I think I will. Three, Invoke the authority of the courts to ensure creation of districts that are consistent with the intentions of our founders for diversity of views and interests. This is happening, fortunately, in several states, such as the decision in North Carolina requiring redrawing district boundaries. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like they went quite far enough. Last, um, and we're going to explore this in a later episode, promote civics in schools, promote the study of history, insist on the rigorous study of the Constitution so citizens may be prepared to deliver informed consent and may be inoculated against bad faith campaigning and lack of political courage. Recall John Adams' view that education makes a citizen brave and enterprising. In other words, courageous. After all, to balance the will of the people with what is good for the country requires wisdom and judgment. It means a willingness to listen and debate rather than accept the views of any candidate who blindly insists they are right. So let's show confidence in our founders' wisdom and cure the political blight of gerrymandering on our constitutional system. So if you like what you've heard, please share it with friends and family. 
time we'll talk more about how citizens' courage is, is important or perhaps more important than the courage we would like to have from our public officials.